Well, at this time, let's turn in our copies of God's Word to Paul's epistle to the Romans, chapter 5. We'll be reading verses 12 through 21. Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through the end of the chapter in verse 21. Let's listen now to the Word of God, beginning in verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, and sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many." And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation. But the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the One, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so, through the one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. May God bless the reading of His Word to us this morning. Amen. Well, seeking the Lord's help and guidance this morning, let's turn back to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, the latter half of the chapter, which we just read. And let's focus our attention upon verse 12, and then again in verse 18. The Apostle Paul begins this section, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. And you see that hyphen in the New King James. And then verse 13 begins with a parenthesis. And if you go to the end of verse 17, you'll see the end to that parenthetical section. So from verse 13 to verse 17, in the minds of the translators of this version, there's a parenthetical section. And it picks up in verse 18. 
Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. Then you'll find, uh, we're not going to read these verses, but you'll find verse 19 and also verse 21 really emphasize this same point as death and sin coming into the world through one man, namely Adam, and salvation from sin and death coming into the world through one man, even the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul states that thesis, or at least the first half of it, concerning the one man, Adam, who brought sin and death into the world. He says that in verse 12. Then there's a parenthesis where he explains some of the nuts and bolts of that theological assertion. And then he picks right back up verse 18, and he reiterates the first half of his teaching, the one man who brought judgment into the world, condemnation, sin and death, and then the one man, the Lord Jesus, who brings the free gift of justification and life and salvation. So we need to recognize something of the structure here of this section if we're to make any sense of it. Now, looking more broadly at this chapter, we recall the fact that Chapter 5, verse 1, introduces a major transition in the epistle to the Romans. And so Paul has spent a number of chapters establishing the need for justifying faith. He's dealt with human sin at the end of chapter 1, throughout chapter 2, and into chapter 3. Both Jews and Gentiles need to exercise justifying faith because they need to be justified because they're condemned for their sin. And then at the end of chapter 3, he expounds the way in which God accomplishes salvation such that these believers can be justified, even through the perfect redemption of Christ, His atonement, His propitiation, turning away God's wrath, and obtaining God's righteousness which is upon all and unto all who believe. And we said at the beginning of chapter 5, you see a transition from faith to hope, where he says at the beginning of the chapter, verse 1, therefore, having been justified by faith, here are the benefits that we have. We have peace with God. We have access into the favor of God through which we stand. But he then begins to pivot toward hope, which we said really takes us on an excursion throughout chapter 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, even into chapter 11 as Paul unfolds the hope of the Gospel. Faith is what God has done and what we now have because of what God has done, at least the the way that it's emphasized here. And hope transitions us to think about what God will do and what we will possess on the basis of what God will do. And so he speaks of rejoicing in the hope of the glory to come, the glory of God. He says that we're able to have this hope and this boasting and glorying even in tribulation because 
when we endure tribulation, it produces experience, confidence. God's helped me through the last tribulation, so there's one on the horizon. God will get me through that as well. And we eventually gain experience. And that breeds hope for the future. Hope that doesn't disappoint. Why? Because as we saw in verse 5, this hope is grounded in the unfailing, steadfast covenant love of the Lord for us. He delivered us in the past because He loved us. And He'll deliver us moving forward because His love is from everlasting to everlasting. It is unchangeable. And so, He illustrates this by widening the view. Right? He's been looking at the hope of the believer moving forward into glory. He's been looking at the hope of the believer in the Christian life from one trial to the next. But now he pans out and he looks backward on the timeline and he considers what God has done for us in Christ. That God's unfailing love for us in Christ will never be removed because of our sin. Because the fact of the matter is, God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So, the very first outflow of God's love for the believer was before you were a believer at all. Before you were regenerate. Before you were anything other than a lost and spiritually dead sinner whose best works were as filthy rags in the sight of God, dead and decaying in your depravity. That's when God loved you. That's when He sent His Son, as it were, to die on the cross to save you, dear believer, when you were an enemy, when you were ungodly, when you were powerless to save yourself or please God in any way, God loved you and reconciled you to Himself through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we said that Paul there is addressing a major objection where someone could say, well, God saved me in the past, Uh, He delivered me in the past, But now you see I've committed these sins that are now going to hinder that. And God will cease to love me and cease to deliver me. No, my friend, He will never cease to love and never cease to deliver His children whom He loved far before, long before there was ever anything good in them. And so God's unfailing, unchangeable, steadfast covenant love is illustrated in and through the redemptive work of Christ on the cross. What Christ did, and the reason that He did it, grounded in God's unfailing love, serves to answer that objection and to bolster and strengthen our hope of deliverance and of final perseverance so that we can continue to rejoice in the hope of glory. Now we find in verse 12 that there's another one of these key words that indicate a transition and yet a continuity of thought. The word, therefore. The age-old explanation, of course, is you're supposed to ask, what's the therefore, therefore? And we saw in chapter 5, verse 1, that the therefore marked an important transition from faith to hope, and there was a logical connection of continuity where faith breeds hope, But we come to verse 12 and we find that many commentators either ignore the word therefore or they confess utter confusion about it or they speculate one thing or another to try to explain 
why Paul transitions from God's unfailing love through the death of Christ to reconcile his people now to the sin and death that Adam brought into the world. What's the connection here? Why does he establish that argument against the objection to our hope in verses 6 through 11? And now, therefore, through one man sin entered and death, and, and through one man Christ, these things are taken away. What is the logical connection? Well, Paul is making something of a closing argument, at least in this portion of his epistle. He has established our hope on the foundation of God's faithfulness and ultimately God's steadfast love. But he has one concluding argument to establish the unchangeable bedrock and foundation of our hope. And he's also mindful of one remaining objection. One remaining source of doubt. One remaining obstacle and hindrance to our faith and our hope as we encounter the trials and the tribulations of life, as we look ahead to the final judgment and we contemplate our own weakness and we contemplate our own sin and we're tempted to fear that, that we're not going to persevere, we're not going to endure to the end. And, and Paul has dealt with so many objections and he's brought so many arguments and you could say, what could be more conclusive than the death of Christ? That God loved us and gave His Son for us while we were enemies and sinners. What could be an argument that even takes it up to the next level? But He has one. He most certainly has an argument that takes it to the next level in building on that foundation of our hope. And as I said, it it answers a remaining objection. Now, the structure of this section, verses 12-21, through as I said is that it begins with the first half of his argument, dealing with sin and death entering the world through the one man, Adam, through the fall in the Garden of Eden. That argument begins in verse 12, but then there's a parenthesis, verses 13 through 17, where Paul feels the need under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to expound and explain the first half of his argument and how it's going to connect to the second half of his argument. And so Paul unpacks some of the deepest theological truths in all the Scriptures. And with God's help, Lord willing, we'll consider this maybe in in a future sermon as we're unpacking these things. But I want to point out here just in passing that Paul is expounding these deepest of theological truths for a purpose. Because he wants everybody who's reading this epistle or hearing it preached or whatever, he wants all of us to understand this closing argument. And he recognizes halfway through stating his argument as he gets through verse 12 that perhaps many people are not going to fully understand what he's even saying here about through one man sin entered the world and death through sin and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. He summarized it masterfully, but he recognizes there are people who might not really understand it or they might have objections to it. Certainly this is one of the most controversial doctrines in all the Bible. The doctrine of human sin. The doctrine of the fall. The doctrine of the imputation of Adam's sin and guilt 
to all mankind descending from Him by ordinary generation. And the fact of the matter is, He's dealing with original sin. Man's inherent sinfulness, which in itself prompts so many questions even by people who aren't doubting the Apostle, yet they can be distracted by these questions. And so the Apostle Paul here says, you know what, we're going to, he doesn't put a hyphen in the Greek, but essentially he's like, we're going to put a hyphen here and a parenthesis, and let's explain some of these things. Not so that God's people can all become theological expert, to understand all these deep doctrines of the faith just so that we can have a a, a giant head full of theological knowledge. No. He's imparting this knowledge and these explanations and these deep doctrinal truths to us so that we can better understand and receive the promises of God and so that we can, to a greater extent, experience the hope and confidence that we have as believers in Christ. Paul is teaching doctrine for life. Doctrine that is theoretical, and perhaps it will take some patience as we go through some of the things that he says in that parenthesis. It will take patience. We'll put our thinking caps on. We're going to be delving into some very deep doctrines. But understand, the purpose of Paul teaching these things is not merely intellectual or academic. It is practical. It is theory that is designed to promote practice. And especially in this case, practical experience of God's hope. Remember, Christianity is a religion that begins in the mind in some sense. You can see in chapter 5 that we were able to rejoice in our tribulations knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. Well, he's doing this again. He's saying in order for us to rejoice in the hope of God's glory and grace and faithfulness, we need to know the doctrine of the imputation of Adam's sin, the relationship between sin and death, the doctrine of original sin. So that parenthesis is very important, but we're going to save that, God willing, for some future sermons. Right now, we want to focus on Paul's closing argument to seal the deal for the firm foundation of the believer's hope. Now, of course, I realize in saying it's his closing argument that he gets back into these kinds of things in chapter 8, and he deals with a whole host of other objections and brings it to a climax at the end of chapter 8. But at least for this section, he's going to conclude this discussion with a final argument in verses 18 then through 21. Now, Paul is well aware that there is this one remaining objection which could threaten to hinder our ability to rejoice in the hope of God's glory. And that objection that remains is the fact that in our perception, in our observation as human beings in this world, even as believers, we see all around us throughout history since the fall, and certainly throughout our entire lives, the universal reign of sin and death in this present fallen world. We see it. We experience this reign of sin and death. We taste it. We observe it. Paul tells us that from Adam to Moses, death reigned. The word there is to reign as a king. To sit enthroned and to reign. 
And we're told that again, that death reigned. Verse 17, for if by one man's offense, death reigned through the one. But then we're told in verse 20, where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life. But we see sin and death reigning, don't we? In this present fallen world, by nature, death is reigning. Job 18 verse 14 refers to death as the king of terrors. The king of terrors. Listen to what he says. Job 18.14 Speaking of the natural man, he is uprooted from the shelter of his tent. That is, his soul is separated from his body. Death. He's uprooted from the shelter of his tent and they parade him before the king of terrors. Verse 18, he is driven from light into darkness and chased out of the world. He wants to stay. By nature, even as believers, in, in some sense, of course, we'd prefer to be absent from the body and present with the Lord, but if you got a cancer diagnosis tomorrow, uh, th- there would be a sense. You want to live, you want to stay, but all the more for the natural man who remains in his fallen, Christless condition, he wants to stay. People in this world want to remain alive. But instead, death chases them out of the world. And death is universal. 150,000 people in this world die every single day. Proverbs 30, verses 15 and 16 tells us that there are a number of things that are never satisfied. They're never satisfied. And the first one on the list is the grave. It's never satisfied. Every single day, more and more people are placed into the grave. More and more people exit this life. Young and old, low and high, rich and poor, wise and foolish, no exceptions. Death is a reality. It is appointed for a man to die once, and then comes the judgment. And you can go to Genesis chapter 5, where this is evident, when it tells us that Adam lived for over 900 years, and then he died. And then Seth lived for centuries, and then he died. And it goes through the entire genealogy of those early generations of mankind. They lived and they died. And it's a stark contrast to the life in which we were created and the inherent desire of mankind to live, and yet he died. He died, he died, he died. We're told in Ecclesiastes 3 verses 1 and 2 that there is a time for everything under the sun. For everything there is a season. We're told that there's a time to be born and a time to die. And as one famous movie quote says, your life is just the hyphen in between uh, the year of your birth and the year of your death on your tombstone. We die. We all die. It's inevitable. Read the book of Ecclesiastes as Solomon meditates on, at least from the standpoint of the natural man, considering everything under the sun in the natural world, 
the, the futility. Uh, I'm going to live a different way of life. I'm going to be superior. I'm going to be moral and wise. And, and yet, we all die. We all end up in the grave. The wise, the foolish, the rich, the poor. No exceptions. Death is reigning in that sense. And sin is reigning in this present fallen world. Sin is reigning over the natural man in the world today. Not just death, not just aging, not just misery and sickness and discomfort and pain, but sin, moral evil. Uh, The Apostle Paul describes the sinfulness that is rampant in the world today. The sin that he says later in chapter 5 is reigning. He describes it in chapter 1. We looked at this, I think, last week. But listen to this description. Now, even if you're not a Christian, listen to the description. And I think, at least for most of these, you'd have to agree, even if you don't think these things are wrong, you don't think these things are sinful, you'd have to agree that what Paul's describing here absolutely does describe the world around us. He says, verse 28 of chapter 1, even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. Okay? Look at the world around us. Are people doing what is fitting? What is appropriate? The King James, I think, translates this what is convenient. Look at the government. Are they doing what's convenient for you? I mean, most people would recognize without batting an eye that the world is filled with things that are inappropriate, not fitting, inconvenient, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality. Is the world filled with sex outside of marriage? It sure is. Wickedness, covetousness. Are people dissatisfied with what they have? Filled with materialistic greed? I think so. Maliciousness. People are angry and nasty to each other. Hateful. Full of envy. Resenting the good of others. Rejoicing when they're brought down. Murder, we know that's prevalent. Strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, people with a bad attitude. Uh, you know, the list goes on. Whisperers, gossips, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents. Does anybody doubt that that's happening in the world around us? Listen, sin is prevailing through a vast majority of people in the world today. So it's not just circumstantial evil, misery and death, but sin is prevailing and reigning over fallen mankind. Undiscerning, untrustworthy. Right? People are easily duped and there's no shortage of folks that take advantage of that. That's what that's saying. Undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. So, we could go on and on. Sin, in that sense, is reigning and it's a bitter thing. Ecclesiastes chapter 4 reflects on this. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, the opening verses of that chapter, then I returned and considered all the oppression that is done under the sun. Is there a lot of oppression in the world? Yes, there is. We heard about it in our, uh, on our email list this week. Just some very sad, oppressive, violent 
acts that have been done against children in an Asian country that we've been praying for. He says, and look, the tears of the oppressed, but they have no comforter. On the side of their oppressors there is power, but they have no comforter. So, death is reigning. Sin is reigning throughout this world. And so, the objection then comes, subtle as it may be, where we say, okay, if death is prevailing, and sin and oppression and injustice are prevailing round about us, therefore, how can I be so sure that God is reigning? And there are no shortage of unbelievers that use this kind of reasoning to tempt us to unbelief, like the people in the Psalms who are always coming up to the the psalmist and saying, where is your God? And people say, look at the death and the misery. Look at the evil and the oppression. Where is your God? And they raise the problem of evil. Which of course, as we'll see in a moment, is not a problem for the believer, it's a problem for the unbeliever. The problem of evil, the problem of misery and death and injustice. And they say, where is your God? Is God really in control? And so as a believer, and we're focusing here on believers, you're tempted to imbibe that, to absorb that. Maybe not to the full extent, but you're tempted in your mind to, to, to really experience a dilution of your hope and your confidence in God. How can I be so sure that God is reigning if sin and death are prevailing throughout the world? Well, you see, for Paul, the reign of sin and death only serves to reinforce the reign of God. See, when you look at these things through the lens of the biblical worldview, if you look at these things through the lens of the Scriptures, then like Paul, you can regard the reign of sin and death as nothing less than an argument for the reign of our sovereign God. Because why is there death? Because there's sin. And why is there sin? Well, we go back to the beginning. God created mankind in His own image. He gave them every advantage. He he gave them natural righteousness an inclination toward what is good. He gave them His law and they violated it. He said, if you you break this commandment, if you eat of the forbidden tree, dying you shall die. Spiritual death, rampant depravity, physical death, misery, disease, death itself. And mankind sinned against God, rejected God, and chose a world where sin and death are reigning over a world in which they could experience the blessed communion and fellowship of God. And so, why are sin and death in the world? Because God is a faithful covenant God. In the day that you sin, you will experience death. In the day that you sin, all mankind will be given over to slavery to sin, and physical misery and death. To dust you shall return. And so God threatened that as part of His covenant with mankind through Adam. And then when Adam sinned, God fulfilled the terms of the covenant. God is faithful and just. 
Why is this world filled with evil and oppression and death and disease? Because God is faithful to His covenant. And He's faithful to do exactly what He said He would do. In fact, if you go to Psalm 90. Psalm 90. Lord, You have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever You had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, You are God. So here's God, our faithful God. God, our Savior. God, our Comforter. God, our dwelling place. God, our Protector. Our hope and our help. And notice verse 3, You turn man to destruction. And say, return, O children of men. Why are 150,000 people dying every day in this world? Because God is sending them to eternity. God is dissolving their soul from their body and separating them and causing their body to return to the dust and their soul to go to heaven or hell. Why? Because He said in the day that you eat of the fruit, dying you shall die. And so he's keeping his promise. We could call it a threat, but for our purposes, let's broaden the sense of a promise, the, the use of that word to say God promised that this world would be riddled with sin and death if man violated that commandment. And so God is keeping his promise. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it is past, and like a watch in the night. So even though thousands of years have passed since Adam took the forbidden fruit from his wife and ate it, God is just as faithful today in overseeing this world of sin and misery and death and bringing about the punishment for Adam's sin, the consequences for, the, for man's fall. He's just as faithful today as He was yesterday as He was thousands of years ago because He's eternal and unchanging. He always keeps His promises. He always fulfills His Word. You carry them away like a flood. They are like a sleep. In the morning they are like grass which grows up. In the morning it flourishes and grows up. In the evening it is cut down and withers. For we have been consumed by Your anger, and by Your wrath we are terrified. You have set our iniquities before You. You see, Moses is reflecting on this, and it's not only the rampant sin and death, in this case death, that is prevailing throughout the world, but here he's reflecting upon the fact that God called Israel to enter the promised land, and they broke His covenant, and they refused, and in keeping with His own character and his own, the terms of His own covenant that He established with His people, he sends them into the wilderness so that that entire generation that refused to enter the promised land would die in the wilderness and their bones would be strewn on the sand of the desert for 40 years. God keeps His Word. And Moses is looking out at that and saying, yes, from a certain perspective, I could say, well then, where is, where is our God? But he's saying, no, God's doing exactly what He said He was going to do. So the more misery and death that I see as a result of God's promise, God's covenant faithfulness, the more confident I am in the other things that God has said that He would do. 
So he said that we would die. He said that the world would be filled with sin. He said that the world would be filled with oppression and misery because of Adam's sin. But guess what he's also said? That through the work of Christ, through faith in Him, my sins would be forgiven. I would be reconciled to God. His Holy Spirit would be in me. And I would no longer be under the dominion of sin. Liberated to obey God. Enjoying the light of His countenance. Acceptance in the Beloved. Final perseverance unto everlasting glory. God has said many things that I cling to with great joy and hope. But you see, when I see the sin and death rampant in the world, that ought not to question my confidence in that God will do what He said, but rather to reinforce it. If He fulfills the threatenings, my friends, how much more will He fulfill the promises to His people in the Lord Jesus Christ? So for Paul, the reign of sin and death reinforces God's in control doing exactly what He said He would do according to His faithfulness and justice. Now also according to Paul, Christ has freed the new humanity from sin and death. And He has done it on precisely the same basic covenantal structure, namely based on God's faithfulness and justice, as that upon which Adam enslaved the old humanity to sin and death. Let me say that again. According to Paul, Christ has freed the new humanity, that's all who are believers in Christ, united to Him, His spiritual seed. Christ has freed the new humanity from sin and death on precisely the same covenantal basis as that upon which Adam enslaved the old humanity to sin and death. We'll see that unpacked, Lord willing, in future sermons. But the hope of the old humanity rested upon Adam's performance in covenant with God in the Garden of Eden. And Adam sinned, and then God fulfilled the threatening against all mankind on the basis of Adam's performance. And you see, Christ functions similarly for all those who are in Him. All those whom the Father gave Him before the foundation of the world. All those who will ever finally come to believe in Him and be united to Him for salvation. All of His spiritual seed, inhabited by His Holy Spirit, He represented them. It's His performance that determines their eternal destiny. And all the things that God promised to do if He fulfilled the terms of that performance, He will faithfully perform for the people of Christ. So the old humanity, all mankind descending from Adam by ordinary generation, was tied and linked and inseparably connected to Adam's performance. Whereas as believers, our eternal destiny is inseparably connected with the performance of the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. So as through the first Adam, sin and death entered, so through the second Adam, sin and death are conquered, and Christ is Lord, and His grace is reigning in the life of every believer. And so Paul is establishing that there's the same basic covenantal representation between the first Adam and the second Adam. And it's all grounded in God's faithfulness and justice. Uh, He actually makes this point in 1 Corinthians 15. 
in a far more succinct way. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 22, as he's addressing a similar issue of people doubting the faith and being concerned about the hope of the resurrection. He says, if we have hope in Christ only in this life, we're of most men to be pitied. So he's addressing the same type of objection. He says, verse 22, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. As in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. Therefore, the reign of sin and death serves to reinforce the reign of grace through Christ and the hope that is set before us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, why are sin and death universally reigning? They're universally reigning because of the absolute certainty of God's faithfulness and justice to do what He said He would do. But you see, what else does God's faithfulness and justice render absolutely certain? What else does God's faithfulness and justice render absolutely certain? It renders absolutely certain the salvation that we have in Christ. And so as you look around you and you see people dying, people that you love dying, as you look around and see misery, as you see oppression, as you see wickedness, you can say, well, that's God's faithfulness and justice fulfilling the consequences of man's fall into sin. And that same faithfulness and justice absolutely guarantees that just as surely as everybody around me is sinning and eventually will die, just as surely I have been saved from my sin through faith in Christ and I will be raised up at the last day. Every time you go to a funeral, every time you see somebody die, whether they're a Christian or not, that should testify to your conscience that God is doing what He said. And just as surely as that person, be they an unbeliever, is laid in the grave and they return to the dust in accord with God's faithfulness and justice and according to His covenantal uh, promise or threat, if you will, even so, God has promised that all who are in Christ shall be raised from the dead. You see, so the misery and the death and the oppression should be harnessed by the believer in a God-centered way through covenantal lenses to increase our hope. The more hopeless the world is outside of Christ, the more it reinforces God's faithfulness to undergird and protect the hope of every believer and bring it to fulfillment. So this is important because the grief and sorrow and misery and wickedness and injustice that we see around us can often be one of the greatest arguments to discourage us and to say, well, is there really a God? Yes, there's a God, and that's why these things are happening. And, and, and because of that same God, some very amazing things are going to happen through His uh, promises. It's very important for us to look at all things not through the lens of this world, but through the lens of the Bible. And that's what Paul's teaching us to do here. Uh, now, the fact of the matter is that this is not the only instance where the Lord calls us to look at our common human experiences 
and to draw strength and encouragement for our faith and our hope from those experiences. Uh, Another example of this type of thing in uh, Matthew chapter 7, the Lord Jesus Christ gives us another one of these sort of existential sources of encouragement. Things in our life that we see and observe, and at least for many of us, we, ex- we experience for ourselves that in some sense, if we see the logic and the analogy and the argument of Scripture that's made, that it can increase our confidence in God and in His faithful love for us. So you go to Matthew chapter 7, verse 11. Listen to what Jesus says. In fact, let's begin in verse 7. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who if his son asks for bread will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? Jesus is dealing here with God's compassion. God's love for His children. That He knows what we need. He's eager to listen to our requests and give us all that we need. And and where we ask for the wrong thing, He gives us something better. But it's that basic sympathy and love of God for His children that we can so easily come to doubt in the Christian life. True believers that for whatever reason struggle to make requests of God with hope and confidence, struggle to feel at an existential level, at an experiential level, God loves me and He's taking care of me and He's listening to me and He'll do what's best for me and He'll be generous toward me for my own well-being. It's tough sometimes to draw experimental, experiential, existential confidence. But notice the argument Jesus makes. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? Notice what Jesus is saying here. He's setting forth an argument that has premises that are undeniable. Premise number one, children... Children are loved by their parents as a general rule. Parents love their children. There's a natural affection. Now we could point out abortion and we could look at the exceptions, but the exceptions prove the rule. That generally, certainly if if we're speaking to someone or if I'm speaking to you and I say you love your children, how many of you are going to say, no, I don't, right? So that's a premise that most of us are willing to acknowledge. That parents have an affection for their children. They have a love for their children, a natural, inborn, native affection placed in them along with the image of God uh, by the Creator Himself. And all the more as believers, right? We love our children. That's the general rule. We have a natural affection for them. The other premise here is that we're evil, we're not perfect, we fail. And Jesus takes these two obvious premises. And and whips it up into a powerful argument that says, okay, are you a child of God? Dear believer, I hope you understand, I hope you have assurance that you're a child of God. So if you're God's child, if you're God's son or daughter, 
And you who are a sinner with imperfect love do love your children and want what's best for them. How much more does God, your heavenly Father, love you and want what's best for you? How much more generous? How much more spiritual affection? How much more? It's a powerful argument, especially as parents when we find ourselves concerned for our child. Something's going wrong with our child. We're concerned for our son or our daughter. Maybe they haven't texted us back and it's late and we don't know where they are. And we feel the burden of that. Or maybe we're rejoicing. They just got married or they just had their first child or whatever it is. And we're rejoicing in our children. Rejoicing over them. We have this affection, this love for them. And it's at that moment Jesus says, harness that. Harness that experience and apply it to your spiritual life, to your relationship with God. If you are at times a rotten, sinful father or mother who needs the grace of God and the forgiveness of God, and yet you can, you have to say, you can't deny the attachment and the concern that you have for your children, then let that stir up your confidence in God's fatherly love. You see, we ought to be looking at our experiences and we ought to be viewing them through the lens of Scripture and drawing spiritual encouragement. So let me go back and close with the the point Paul's making here. It's not the same point, but it's a very similar point. He's saying, look at the world around you that's full of sin. Look at the news reports every day that frustrate you because the world is full of oppression. Look at the missionary reports where children are being blown to pieces by wicked, violent men. Listen to the sound of the weeping and the oppression as Solomon did. Take it in. Look at the world that sin has produced. Look at the world that Adam's sin has produced and God's faithfulness to carry out the consequences. From dust you were made to dust you shall return. When you're at a funeral, take it in. When you're thinking about someone you love who is aging and they're declining and eventually they're gone here today, gone tomorrow, recognize the same covenant faithfulness of God that brought that about is the same covenant faithfulness of God that will raise that person up at the last day. And if they're a believer, raised up in glory. The same covenant faithfulness of God that plagues the world with sin and misery and injustice is the same covenant God that says, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. And I'll make sure that sin shall not have dominion over you. For you're not under law, but under grace. My friends, death is proof that our covenant-keeping God keeps His Word. And somebody says, well, death is natural. Death is natural. But what you're talking about is supernatural. Death is natural. Is death natural? Is that how you feel when you see a loved one declining, aging, losing their mental and physical capacities, that it's just, oh, ho-hum, it's just natural. It's just Mother Nature doing her thing. Is that how the unbeliever even views the death of a loved one as they go to a funeral? Oh, it's just natural. No big deal. Decay, decline, disease. Dust to dust. 
My friends, you can speak that way, but you can't live that way because when the people you love become food for the worms, it doesn't seem natural. In fact, it bears the marks of a supernatural God. Death doesn't make any sense. People are alive and then they're dead. It's almost the same mystery of viewing something that's dead becoming alive. Uh, It's it's in some sense uh, almost on par with that mystery to consider someone who's alive and now they're dead as a doornail. It's, it doesn't make sense. It bears the marks of a supernatural judgment of God. And my friends, that death that we experience and over which we grieve and weep is proof that our covenant-keeping God keeps His Word. Human sinfulness is proof that His Word does not return void. This same God who is bringing about those consequences for what Adam did wrong has promised in Christ to give righteousness unto eternal life to you as a believer in Him. As in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. Let's pray. Gracious God, we marvel at the precision of Your covenant faithfulness. Everything that You promise or that You threaten comes to pass and never returns void. And so we give thanks that even as we see the fruit and the consequences of Adam's sin all around us, that it reinforces our utter hope and confidence that all that Christ has achieved and accomplished and all that You've promised would flow from it will indeed flow to everyone who puts their trust in Him, both now and for eternity. We ask in His name. Amen.